Welcome to the Evolution Exchange UK podcast. We are bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they're facing. I am Flavio Aragoni from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I'm your host. So, first of all, um, can we introduce can we introduce all yourself? I got Charlie. Uh, hi, Charlie. Can you introduce yourself to to the others, your role, your company, and what you do in a nutshell? Please. Hi. Yeah. So uh, nice to meet you. I'm Charlie Markham. I'm a CTO at Metapraxis. I've been CTOing for the best part of the last decade, having uh, exited investment banks before that, having done technology roles there as well. Um, so yeah, that's me. Great. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, Justin. Oh yeah. Um, my name's Justin as well. I'm currently head of product for a company called Nine Labs. Um, and also CTO for a company called Link Health Group. I, like Charlie's been CTOing, I love that term, never come across that one before, uh, for about 10, 11 years. Um, I, my sort of first foray into the role was working with a uh, fintech startup, um, which I two exited out of about seven years, eight years ago. Good stuff. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Azim? Hi, I'm Azim Oguntala. Uh, I'm a software development manager at Fivesev. Um, I used to be a software developer, and then I transitioned into the development management role. Um, yeah, so at Fivesev, generally, we develop apps to help the um, fintech market, basically. So we are everywhere there's fintech, we are sort of there. And yeah, that's what I do. Good stuff. Thank you. Richard? Hi, I'm Richard Neal. I'm the Technical Operations Director at William Reed a global media, events, and insights business, which provides inspiration and connections to the global food and drink industry. As Technical Operations Director, I oversee all of our IT support teams, as well as product testing, integrations, and rollouts. Uh, I've been doing this sort of role for the last 15 or 20 years through varying businesses. Great, so let's go Let's go on. So um, you all have a question that uh, you shared with me. Um, so I'll start with uh, Charlie first. Uh, Charlie, I'm going to read the question out and then if you'd like to expand on it, then uh, you know you can do. So um, the questions that Charlie would like, would like to ask are, with a new joiner who's not driving, how do you decide between failing fast and investing into their development? And also, team members are increasingly ambitious and thinking about their next job. How do we help them focus on their current responsibilities and also avoid the Peter principle. Would you like to expand on that, Charlie, or are you happy with that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so maybe I, if I give a bit of context about what kind of brought those things to the front of my mind, maybe that would yeah. be helpful, maybe some scenarios. Sure. Um, so certainly, I mean, one of the things that I've done, um, having worked in remote first organizations for some time, is um, use services like Upwork. Um, and with there, with with um, software developers, you need to, in some ways it can be a roll of the the, the dice. Um, so you hire somebody um, you, by interviewing them remotely, technically testing them remotely, and then with all those processes in mind, you then bring them into your team in faith that they're going to do well. But sometimes, for whatever reason, their performance doesn't in in the job doesn't match their performance in interview. So. I'd be really interested, you know, how, how far would you uh, all be willing to go with a developer who's struggling 
being brought in um, potentially as a contractor or maybe as a family as well. How far would you go before saying, actually, you know, um, this isn't working out? And to how much would you be willing to invest? So I, that, that, that's the kind of drive for that first question, I suppose. Thank you, Charlie. Okay, Justin, would you like to give your thoughts and your take? Yeah, I think uh, it's a very interesting question. And, and, and you know, you, without thinking about, the, you know, thinking about it, I, I've come across it a couple of times in my career. And I think, you know, I think there's a there's a there's something to be said with of uh, how you approach the assignment of work and task to a developer first and foremost, and you know, given the you know, if you put it in a in a perspective of a scenario where you just hired someone and you're basing your allocation based on a interview code test discussion. Um, that can be reasonably difficult. I think the approach that we've always adopted is is sort of the ease in gently method, uh, whereby we've given new developers who've joined us uh, uh, relatively simple and gentle tasks to get them up to speed and give them exposure to platforms that they're working within, client systems that we're asking them to to join and part, be part of the project. Um, but that's not that's not a, a a golden bullet by any stretch of the imagination. I think you, you you hope that spending that time and 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 giving that thought process to allocation of work is gonna is gonna be successful. But you know, inevitably there will always be something that trips trips you up. And I think you know, for me, it's the communication piece around. Uh, the management of your development team and you know i'm not one that subscribes to agile and all of the lovely project management things that people come out with but what i do subscribe to is regular touch points regular communication um reg regular discussions where you provide your developers with a safe space so that they can feel like they can raise concerns problems and issues and and that hopefully gives you opportunity to head them off at the pass to pivot and make those changes um i prefer to work with developers who are struggling on a project within that project rather than reallocating them somewhere else um and in terms of the investment of that i think you know given the costs of hiring nowadays uh, i think you want to spend a reasonable amount of time doing that process or proceeding through that but i think ultimately you know if you're in a client facing environment whereby you're work for hire you've got to be careful as to the, the the time cost and therefore the financial cost of managing a developer that isn't performing the way you'd expect but again it's down to communication and i think if you get to the point where you feel that you've exhausted every opportunity then the developer should already know that they're in that that environment in that position and that's my view anyway and actually it's it's really interesting because i was having a conversation with a colleague earlier about this about um because when you when you bring someone into the team it's not just about you know their, their technical fits and their ability to to close out jira tickets or uh, trackers or whatever you may have but also it's about whether you know they subscribe to vision and values and um uh, we, we we're very strong in communication and collaboration 
Um, and if they prove not to be open to open communication and the proactive collaboration, or indeed require a bit too much micromanagement, then that can prove very challenging. <clears throat> and, I, and I suppose for each of us, there may be kind of a, a point probably within a probation period where we say um, enough is enough, but that, I think that probably varies from person to person. I think, I think you're right. I think there's a, there's a there must have been something there for you to have even made that move in the first place, right? Mm. So, you know, you, you need to ensure that you're ex exploiting is probably the wrong word, but, you know, taking advantage of that thing that you saw as much as you possibly can mm. but you're right it's it is all about communication in my view it's all about that safe space that ability to fail and not fail and feel bad about it but fail and learn from it absolutely good stuff thank you justin um adim uh what is your take on it um, hi charlie yeah that's a, a really good question um so um in my department and in my experience uh we mainly work on agile we, we use the agile approach and i've come across this uh, once or twice so and it, it went both ways so but the two things we consider mainly was first of all their attitude to learning and their openness so just like you mentioned are they open to communication are they open to new ideas um are they proactive in learning and if if this is there, then the other thing is um, how do they fit with the team? So I have meetings with other team members, right, to see what's their opinion on this team member. And in one so in one scenario where it went well, um, yes, other team members felt they are putting a lot of effort. They are um, they are open to ideas. They are willing to learn, and they fit well with the team. But the only thing was it's just the technical challenges and. Um, so the probation period was extended and like we invested more into the training and it did turn out well so because it was just technical challenges and uh, the developer was willing to learn well if these are not there right if the person is not really open to learning maybe they are not proactive like you said they need a lot of um they are not self-driven they need a lot of micromanagement then it's not going to work out especially in my environment where it's uh it's an agile development and you really need developers um, delivering fast so um, there was another situation where um, the person wasn't just self-driven after uh, various talks and chats and various um, plans made development plans for a lot of micromanagement was needed and that was just unsustainable and you just had to let the person go so yeah that's my take on it I stuffed I know exactly what you need because um, there's that thing about, especially with remote work, you want people on your team who you don't have to be watching over their shoulder because you can't. Yeah. So you've got to trust them to be, I, I, when I interview people, I say, look, we're all grown-ups and we want to treat you like a grown-up. And if we can't, then, then we're going to have, we're going to really struggle because we're kind of, we're hybrid with four days uh, remote and one day in the office. So, you know, we have to have that trust. Um, and, and, and actually, in absence of that trust, you know, the, the tools of supervision are so awful, you know, taking screenshots or, you know, being on a call the whole time. It's just, it's just unfeasible. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's just not possible. Can imagine. I did hear of some companies putting cameras over people, but I think that's going to be too far. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Aziz. Right. I mean, to Charlie's point, you know, we, we, we're employing adults. Yeah. You know, th these people are adults. And they should be treated as such, and they should they should operate as such. And if they're not, 
then maybe we've made the wrong decision. But, it, you know, the, the, the hybrid working environment or even the fully remote working environment should be a bonus, bonus and a benefit to a developer. You know, it's you're in your own zone. You know, then no more is this of this sat at a row of desks with 50 other developers all plugged into headsets not talking to each other because it's pointless, you know. So I think I engage with my development team more now from a remote perspective than I ever did when I had people sat in a room with me. You know, there's no, it's not as forced. So. That's interesting. Uh, sounds like there is a common team. The communication aspect is very important. So thank, thank you, um, Azim. Richard, um, what's your take? Would you agree with the communication aspect and uh, any other thoughts or takes? What's your take, basically? Well, there's understandably a difference between a contractor and a new permanent employee. It's, it's fair to say we'd spend a lot more effort on a new employee because employment of any individual is a, is a long-term investment. So in the past... Uh, with someone that's struggling, I've broken down their role into manageable task-based activities. It might just be that they're feeling overwhelmed because everything is so new. So depending on the role, you could have them shadow a colleague for a particular activity and then ask them what they learned about that. We're not just looking at the technical elements they learned, but how we as a company deal with issues, how we deal with our staff, how we react to and prioritize problems. So it's similar to the vision statement we discussed earlier, making sure that they align to the organization's mission statement as well. You could then ask that individual to do a similar task on their own and ask them how it went uh, and then gather feedback from the person they dealt with. And finally, I think what we're really looking at is determining whether they can, they can do the role, they're just not good at comms or interaction with others, or whether they genuinely can't do the role. And if it's the latter, that they generally can't do the role, I think it's an important for us to take that away as a learning opportunity for ourselves and question how we could try and better identify that at the initial interview stage the next time around. Those, those are really good points. And actually, you remind me of another thing that, that's extremely important is diversity. And so if if you find it as a kind of a high percentage of people who are struggling to, to integrate with the team, actually, maybe that's the team structure might be too rigid for example or that you know ways of working need to be more flexible or um you know uh yes that, that some some change might be need to be made within the team rather than the individuals joining um so that's that's a really good point um and and, and certainly you know we have um uh a quite flexible approach to 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 uh working with with our team members um, just, just for example, you know, there, there's some people who wanted to take a two-hour lunch break because they've got things that they need to do at lunchtime or have family commitments. And so um, where we can be flexible um, in terms of their, them keeping their hours, as long as they complete the things they commit to and do a, you know, work at the level that's expected. Actually, do we need to be, say, you need to be online from nine till six or that's it? Or can we actually give them that space to be able to to manage themselves and, and to thrive? Gustav, yeah, very good uh... Very good um, takes there from everyone. So thank you very much. Um, okay, if we can move on to the next one, then uh, I'd like to go in the order I got in my screen, which is Justin. Um, Justin, I'll read your question and then you can uh, expand on it, of course. So uh, project fatigue can be a common challenge in long-term technology projects. How do you recognize and address signs of project fatigue within your team? Are there any strategies or techniques you found helpful in mitigating the impact of project fatigue and keeping 
the team members engaged and motivated throughout the duration of a project. Um, yeah, Justin, if you want to expand or if you're happy with that, either way. Yeah, I think I think you know we we all in our respective roles over the part over the years have probably come up against the de- dreaded developeritis. You know, it's, there's something new and shiny over there. I want to go and play with it, and I don't want to do this anymore because it's boring. Um, or I've been doing it for the last six months. I don't want to do it anymore. I want to go and write something new and shiny over there. Um, and it really is, you know, I'd be interested to hear how you guys have identified that ahead of time or if you've identified it ahead of time and how you've mitigated it because I find that it happens with alarming regularity, especially when you're on a, I mean, you know, our company develops and deploys the software as a service product so you know the product is the the development environment we're not doing new code for new people we're writing our own platform so that it's a long-term process and you know often our developers will be doing the same thing for two or three months or you know working on features uh, in that environment so yeah just really interesting to know how you guys if you come across it and there you guys have handled it it's it's, it's, a really, it's a really funny one because this is something i was also talking with my vp of engineering about earlier today um because we were characterizing you know like the, if you've got a scale uh, a balance you know you've got um uh innovators at one end and iterators at the other i guess um and i'd say you know, you've got some developers who all they want to do is build you know mvps or um, you know, prototypes, like build things very fast. It doesn't have to have all the logging. It doesn't have to have all the, you know, uh, automated tests built in, but it does need to prove that this product is is going to work. And then the other end, you've got people who are very happy to, you know, add an endpoint a week or, you know, a, a change a week or whatever it might be. You know, just very gradual iteration and work on that for, for many years. Um, and I suppose it comes back to, you know, do we, uh, there, there must be some people who can comfortably move from one end of the sliding scale to the other and then piece, like, happily be an iterator for three years. But actually, those people are probably few and far between. And so I suppose as businesses change and grow, the makeup, the makeup of a team might also need to change in order to adjust from the people who came up with the product and were building it in the first place, and those innovators, to iterators. Um, who who inherit and and then stabilize and yeah do all those good things are also essential. Gustav, I think that's I think that's incredibly wise. I think you, you know the, the 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 identification and differentiation of of a developer type or a developer persona, if you like, is is often you know quite key to the success of any project. You know, and and the allocation of task and resource in the right place to play to those strengths is is equally as important but um yeah great great answer thank you um thank you charlie azim uh what is your take um yes uh, it's a good question justin and very good answer from charlie um so in the i guess in the long term i would agree with um uh, what Charlie has said, and in the medium to short term, um, strategies that I've employed in the past is in a situation where, for example, you have some sort of control over the features that go into the platform or the project, you could, you know, 
make an avenue for the team members to even come up with ideas for some feature. It might not be a critical feature, but just some feature, something they added to the project. Because in that case, if it's something they come up with, then you get um, more, in- they get more enthusiasts to do it because it's their work, it's their suggestion, and it's their idea. And then you can sort of build uh, a short-term enthusiasm again, if you like. And the other thing is also uh, very important to celebrate the milestones. So especially when it's a very long project or a project that keeps changing, if you if you develop a new feature, an important feature, maybe for the client and you go live, you should celebrate that. So they know that, I guess, even though it's it seems repetitive, it's very important and um, uh, everyone is happy about it. And the other thing is, uh, this depends on if you have multiple projects, say maybe you have multiple projects running, then one thing you can employ is maybe sort of team shuffling or team loan, uh, team member loaning person. So in my um, company, for example, I liaise with other development managers and I can say, okay, for a couple of sprints, uh, I see this one of my team members losing interest. So for a couple of sprints, maybe you can come to your team, just work on some feature, something different, you know, just to keep them refreshed and then so we swap we swap team members just for a couple of sprints and then they come back to the project again and a bit more effect but these are all solutions just for the medium to short to medium term anyway because over the long term it's just like charlie said if they are innovators they would want to continue innovating or if they are iterators then um it's it's all fine then yeah great thank you team um richard what what you sorry so I was going to say, actually, you reminded me of something else that I heard. And I don't know if they still do it at Google, but I think they did have a thing where it was Friday or Friday afternoon, and they'd set aside time for for a kind of pet project. I think that's how is that how Gmail came around? Is one of their yeah. you know, flagship products was was you know somebody's Friday afternoon project became oh right. a, a big deal. So so I suppose also just off the back of what you were saying, you know, it's possible just to give people space to innovate without actually even them needing to go anywhere else. Yeah, the, 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 the Google hack days, as they called them, mm. were, were you know, it was pretty innovative of them. Um, but I think, and I'm, I might be wrong, but I think they've rolled them back because a lot of people were, were living for the hack days rather than living for the project. And so they had that imbalance again of, of the innovators, you know, going, oh, well, last Friday I did this really cool thing. I want to spend time doing that, and I don't really want to spend time doing this over here. And so it kind of the imbalance happened. Um, but you're right, Gmail, and I think Docs came out of Hack Days as well. So, um, yeah, very clever idea, but I think a bit of a nightmare to manage. Interesting. I didn't know this. Um, Richard, what's your take? Well, you can often spot early signs of project fatigue if one of the team members is demotivated. You'll pick that up in the things they say, or their involvement in the project will start to decline. They'll give less input, they'll be less enthusiastic. To address that in the past, I've previously broken up that project into smaller bite-sized elements on which the teams can dedicate focus. So you might spot a bit of a theme in some of my answers here, breaking up larger pieces of work into manageable chunks. They might not be used to working on a large project or a program. So taken as a whole, they might see it as an unmanageable ask. And that's where we need to help them to identify specific pieces of work which we know they're good at or which we know they enjoy. And I think that's key. Get back that motivation and positivity by empowering them to work on something they enjoy and they feel they do well. Ideally, 
those would be tasks or elements with which they don't need to involve others around the business. Tasks that a project can get dragged out or stalled if they need input from multiple areas of the business. And I think the larger the business, the longer it takes to get those decisions. And, and the worst thing is to have a decision made to do some work in it for four weeks and then the decision is reversed or changed. And then I would say the onus is on us as well to remain positive but honest with our teams here. If, if they're suffering project fatigue, we might be as well in, in a long, drawn-out project. So we need to lead by example, reassure them that the work they're doing has value and that they're doing a good job with every element they they complete. Uh, because if they weren't, that's a different issue that should be addressed. If you're happy with their work, keep reassuring them and that will help with that motivation. That's a really that's a really good point. And um, also, I, I suppose that that's that connectivity from kind of potentially a, an engineering team that's a long way away from customers, maybe via a product team to, to, the, to the end users. So there could be a failure in that kind of feedback mechanism. So, you know, one of the things in our product life cycle is um, you, you, you have a delivery phase, but then you have a validation phase after that, which is, did the feature I delivered actually achieve the results we expected? And if it does, then the developer gets good feedback. And if it doesn't, then the developer gets an insight into, you know, maybe they can push back on future features. They say, well, we're doing the same, we're going to make the same mistake again. And then they can be empowered to actually be part of, of better delighting customers. So that's a really good point. I, I, I agree completely. I think that there's, a, there's something to be said of, of, of not allowing developers to be isolated from the end users, mm. from the customer. I think developers need to see their output being used in the wild. It validates their effort. It validates their thought processes. And ultimately, as you say, Charlie, it gives them more knowledge going forward as, as to whether that thing worked or not the way that it was expected to work or not and the next time the new thing comes up whether they're going to do it the same way and you know i think later on there's a question about voicing you know developers having a voice i think you know the more connected they feel the more likely they are to have a voice and discuss things with you so i think that's a really important part of the process thank you everyone um anyone else would like to expand further on this topic uh, maybe we can move on to the next one i just don't want to be you know moving on too quick if you are so no we, we okay cool okay so uh, next one uh, at the end we're going to go with your uh, with your points um so just going to read them through and then um you can expand on them if you like so um one of the key factors in building a high-performance team is defining roles and responsibilities of the team. On one hand, you want the responsibilities of each member of the team to be within their strength and skill sets in order to get the best efficiency. On the other hand, you want them to be challenging enough to maintain enthusiasm and create room for indiv individual learning and improvement. How do you strike a balance between these, bearing in mind that less challenging responsibilities may reduce enthusiasm, while more challenging ones may reduce efficiency? That's a great question. Great question, Antim. Um, would you like to to expand? Or I mean, to be fair, it's quite clear. But yes, go on, please. Sorry. Yes. So I'll just give a little context. Again, this is mainly coming from an um, agile development team background, where you know um, you have to deliver. You have a deliverable every couple of weeks or so, and you would have a team of developers ranging from, say, a junior developer with little experience to a senior developer with um, a lot of experience. 
right? And you want your junior developer to improve, but then again, um, you want everyone you want everyone to deliver as much as they can, right? In in that sprint. So that's why the question comes that do you just keep assigning tasks that are within the, the individual strengths such that they can deliver it as soon as possible? They can do as much of this as possible, or you give them something more challenging and they have to take some time out to learn. So they do less of the tasks, but they spend more time learning and they develop. So how do you how do you balance this? Cool. Charlie, would you like to go first? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a difficult one, actually. It's a difficult one because actually for, for me, um, it really depends on the, the commercial context. Um, and I think, for example, with with I, when I've worked for very scale-ups or startup businesses, um, you really don't have the capacity within a development team to have people doing a great deal of learning on the job full stop because you are so cost-bound, so time-bound, that you just have to ship it as fast as you can and, and get it in the hands of your customers. So actually, this, is this for me, it feels like um, you're, you're kind of later stage already before you, you even start trying to address this properly and have the capacity in terms of time and money to address this. Um, so at, at that point, then, um, yeah, I think... I think the, for me, trusting someone who's a very good VP of engineering or software, you know, uh, uh, delivery manager, um, it is is to say, okay, I've got this person; they've got the potential to be really good and to to get stuck into some data database development, or it might be calculation engine development, or something that they've not done before. They're showing real potential, and actually, I'm willing to have this as um, a tax on uh, productivity now, with the expectation of a return later. And so that's why I think it's, it's kind of a later stage thing potentially. I think Justin looks like he maybe doesn't agree with me, but actually, then you're you're playing a lot of year or you know, at least a, a many month strategy where you say actually this person's going to grow and develop as a result of this. I'm going to get so much more out of them long term than I am going to lose short term. So that that that's how what how I approach it. I, obviously, it's quite it's, it's a bit it's a bit economic approach, but um, but yeah, I, I suppose where, where I can, we do that. Um, but certainly in the, the smallest of companies, we, you know, I, we've never been able to do that. It's always been urgent feature delivery by people who know what they're doing on day one. Great. Thank you, Charlie. Justin? Yeah, so, um, Charlie, I agree and disagree. I, I, and, and I completely understand and get the commercial argument because that's where I live right now. You know, we limited resources, limited time, loads of things to do need you to do it i haven't got a lot of time for you to sit and learn how to write a sql script can you just do it please i think that there is a certain amount of that and and, and, and you're absolutely right in a startup environment you just don't have the time the finance the brain space the whatever you know you've got the the investors breathing down in your neck because they need a product they need a deliverable i think where i disagree and you know to to to, to echo what Richard was saying, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but the, the communication thing comes out of here. I think if a developer, a junior, if we take a junior developer as an example, if they're given the tools and the ability and the space and comfort to raise their hand and say, I don't know what I'm doing or I've hit an issue, and you breed a culture of collaboration and, you know, sort of all pulling in the same 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 direction then 
the learning and development of a developer is inherent in that process. And so whilst you may not making specific provision for someone to sit down and do a four hour YouTube course on machine learning, what you're doing is you're allowing the fostering of knowledge and the imparting of knowledge across the team and, and, and that scared shared skill set then starts to develop. And then to, to Charlie's point further is, you know, two, three years down the line when you are bigger and you've got that solid team, that culture's already in place. You have cross skills, you have the ability for those developers who started off as just a JavaScript guy who can now write, you know, some store procedures in the SQL database because he at some point had to do it and was guided through it by, you know, a peer. So I think, you know, that communication, that ability and comfort to put their hand up, say, I don't know what I'm doing, but also the other developers, the senior guys, the guys with more knowledge being comfortable and encouraged to impart knowledge, I think is the right thing. And I think, when it comes to the commercial aspect, I think there's a certain amount of planning that you need to put in place. I think if you know you've got a bunch of junior developers, you know you're not going to deliver as quickly as if you had a bunch of senior developers. So you need to make sure that you've planned for that. You need to make sure that your project timelines are sufficient, that that, that process can naturally happen. Otherwise, you will end up getting to a delivery point and there being nothing there and everybody panicking and running around like headless chickens. So, yeah, agree and disagree, but I think, you know, on the same page in terms of uh, it's that communication piece, that ability to talk to each other. Uh, and I think you made really good points, and I agree with you. Um, what I would I add, actually, there, there, there was a commercial driver in there that I completely missed that you've actually reminded me of, which is um, if you rely only on your senior developers, of, of whom you may only have a few, to deliver key bits of your platform, and nobody else is trained up to be able to work with them, then you end up with single points of failure across your your stack because only one developer knows how to do the bit that they built and nobody's cross-trained and then if they leave your stack. So actually, earlier on, it is commercial necessity to have at least a couple of people working on any given thing. And if, that, if the second person isn't as strong as the first, they've still got to be engaged. Um, so that's a really good point. And, and I, I've seen teams fall foul of that. So that, yeah, that's a very strong commercial driver as well for that kind of cross-training, shared learning. Cool. Uh, very interesting. Um, I can see from my side that uh, some of my clients, when they say, you know, that person left and they had all that domain knowledge, what am I going to do now? So that links up very well with what just discussed. Yeah. You, you never, that exposure point where you realize that you've made that clanger and that you've got a key member of the team that's rotated out of the business and you don't have anybody to fill, fill that gap usually ends up especially in a startup environment ends up the cto or the vp of engineering getting their hands dirty and having to yeah. sort of pull double duty and and that's what not what you want to be getting involved with yeah i, I one of my previous employers had a back end that was built completely in closure um and when when their developers left we couldn't find anyone who knew the language <laughs> and so we were totally stuck uh, we eventually did find someone, but uh, what a nightmare, you know, especially especially when it's kind of an obscure language or it's one that's not been used for a while. You know, it's uh, it can be very challenging. So yeah, definitely, it's an argument for cross training. Good stuff, yeah.
Richard, what's your what's your thoughts? I like this question because it speaks to career growth, learning, and self-improvement of each member of the team. And that's so important in creating and maintaining effective teams. It's a good opportunity to help them achieve some of their goals or objectives that you might have discussed with them during their annual review. In my experience, most technical people want to learn something new. They want to be challenged as long as it's not every day, nine to five, putting out fires. So whilst you'll often have tasks that do need to be completed quickly or within a certain time frame, sometimes you can build slack into a project to allow for some longer running research sections. That's especially the case if the technical members of the project team are responsible for both break fix as well as their project work. You have to build that slack into the timelines because you'll never totally quantify the amount of time you need to reserve for that break fix or support part of the role. So if you're building that slack in the projects that you can, that gives you the scope to have the non-experts do some initial investigations and present their findings back to the team. Now, you have to be careful, of course, that those who do have the skills don't feel they're being sidelined. So it's important to share that around and make sure that everyone works on something different. And if you only do that in some projects, for the projects where you can control the timeline, that gives you the opportunity to do so. I think, I think there's, there's another, there's an additional dimension to that, actually, which is also you know, on that communication side, know your team. Because you you know, you know have, maybe you have someone who's like working comfortably in the middle of the stack, but do we want them to move towards, you know, I mean, this has been more old school, but you know, more front end stuff. Do we want them to learn, learn where we were with charts and, and diagrams and, you know, all that, that good stuff? So do we want them to become more advanced on charting? Or do we want to move more towards Calc Engine? So having good conversations, good communication with people that allows you to spot opportunities for them to move into, you know, pick up something that, that is not maybe the most urgent piece of work, but it's going to give them an edge into that, um, into a new area of the stack. So yeah, having good relationships, understanding what people's ambitions are. Um, and I think, you know, um, and, and recognizing people's potential. I suppose that the flip side of that is also recognized when people potentially struggle or are not best suited. So I've seen some people who are excellent you know, visual design, you know, come up with brilliant front ends very, very quickly, but you don't want to put them anywhere near um, a database, for example. So, so knowing, knowing your developers, knowing, knowing their ambitions and, and where they're going to thrive or, or struggle is, uh, yeah, is important. Yeah, know your team. No, you too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Quite right. I think there's been, you know, I mean, throughout my career up until probably the last six to six to eight years, I guess, there was always a a thought process where you should always stick in your lane. You know, you are a back end dev, you are a front end dev, you're a full stacker, you are a database guru. And I think the more and more that we proceed in this world and the more and more work we do, the more and more I realize is that actually developers can bring a lot of cross uh, cross stack skills depending on what you're doing, you know. So, uh, you know, a, a prime example of that, and you know, listening to the, listening and knowing your team is that I recently working with a back end dev who really, really wanted to do some UI work, really, really wanted to do UI work. Um, so. We had a feature that we were planning. We put him in front of Figma and said, go at it. And he produced a wonderful bit of work that was just completely unexpected. Came from left field. I mean, this guy's a serious nerd. I mean, he sits in dark rooms and builds cool stuff. But, you know, he produced beautiful 
user experiences and user interfaces for this feature and you just didn't it came out of left field you like where did that come from and it's that listening that that's that open listening isn't it and it's that idea of you know when we're not all just what we are you know the three of us the four of us here on this call didn't start off life being cto's we got to this point for technical guys so that growth and that communication, that identification and knowing your team, I think is really important. Yeah, those are very good answers. So, yeah, so it's, it's good to take that productivity hits uh, in the short term or well, you gain a lot more, I guess. Great. Thanks for the for the question, Antim. Um, sparked some very good thoughts. Okay, so uh, I'll move on to um, Richard. Um, so um, I'll read your questions, Richard and, uh, Richard, and then you can expand on them if you like. Um, how do you create a culture of continuous learning and improvement within the team? How do you deal with uh, personality clashes within the team? Um, how do you encourage shy people to speak up, especially if you know they might have a good idea about something? And how do you build trust within the team? Uh, how do you onboard a new member into the team so they don't feel like an outsider? Um, I appreciate that five questions. So maybe Richard, you can expand on it, and then you know we can always repeat them if if the other panelists have not, um, you know, uh, have, have missed some of them. Uh, but Richard, yes, would you like to expand on those? Yeah, certainly. So I wrote my questions as bullet points, more as discussion points. Um, so since we're more doing long form answers, maybe I'll just pick two of them that work really well together. So yeah, sure. How do you all create a culture of continuous learning and improvement within your team? And how do you build that trust within the team to make sure they're all working together towards a common goal and not against each other in competition? Charlie, would you like to go first, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I think where, where my mind goes first with this, with the continuous learning, is to recognize that there are people learn in different ways. So for me, I'm, I'm quite experiential learner. So I, I want to go and get stuck into something straight away, start you know, doing my own, my own version of learning a new programming language or something. That I want to be straight in there, making mistakes, getting corrected, and, and have those experience. Um, some of my colleagues at Metapraxis um, are very much the opposite. You know, they want to go read the manual first. Um, and so, I think we come back to the, 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 the one of the conclusions from the last topic, which is to know your team, um, understand how people want to learn, and then um, find ways to um, give them opportunities to, to to have that learning. So. So for me, I, I, I kind of get stuck into 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 new things, break it, fix it, break it, fix it. And that's my way of learning. So I don't actually need courses particularly. I'm, I, I will get bored in a course, but I will make terrific progress with something which is more interactive. Uh, one of my colleagues, um, uh, however, is keen to do an AWS uh, core. I mean, it's a fundamentals course. I can't remember it's called, but the, the core fundamentals AWS course. Do all the reading, do all the prep, do the exam, have the certificate. Um, and so, so yeah, with with my team, kind of going through, saying well, what for each individual, what's going to work best for them? How do they then carve out enough time to uh, make that possible for them? You know, find the budgets, plan the budgets up front. Um, I, obviously, their goals have to be aligned with our goals as well. So, having a clear vision of you know where we're going with the platform, we'll making sure that. You know, if, if they want to learn about databases, they're going to learn about Postgres rather than MySQL, for example, in our case. So having those things in mind as well. But that, that's that's where I start, but we'll probably expand more when others give 
better answers than mine. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And and I agree with that. Give them the flexibility to learn what they would like to learn as long as it aligns with your business goals. So you and can help in them. In their way. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That is important. Justin, uh, what's, uh, what's your take on it? I, and do you know what? I, I, I rarely find this because I'm quite an opinionated chap, but I think I'm pretty much aligned with what Charlie said there. I don't think there's much I can add to it. Um, I think it's absolutely right. I think you need to make the space and you need to, you know, allow people to learn the way they want to learn. Um, I think, you know, it's a great technique to help, you know, incentivize them to learn about things that are useful to the business because ultimately, you know, you need to benefit from it. Um, but yeah, I think for me, the, the, the question that I've been sitting here pondering is the, the trust question and, and how we build trust in a team. And I circle back to previous points. I think it's 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 about that uh, installing the 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 idea of that no comment is a bad comment, no point of view is either valid or invalid. It's a discussion point, and that we can discuss it. We can talk about all of these things. So that you know uh, that we all have different perspectives on how things should or shouldn't be done, or how we should or shouldn't operate um and i think fostering the culture of discussion and communication back to communication is really important there because ultimately that's how we build trust and ultimately you want to allow your team to have that space as much as possible to be able to have those discussions and you know development teams i've always thought are, are more like families than they are work environments you know there is a certain amount and level of dysfunctionality that comes with a development team because developers are very special kind of people you know we we know what we know we like what we know we'd like to do that and that's it and then someone comes along and does it a different way well well, no i don't think i like that but i think you know what makes a successful family especially from my point of view is the ability to talk to each other about it have those open conversations and that's where the trust comes in. And I think a team that trusts each other and a team that's able to communicate and and discuss these things is ultimately going to be a more productive team. I don't think you, you're not going to have that level of production and that level of success with a team that's siloed and doing their own thing and not talking to each other and doesn't feel like they can talk to each other. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, trust comes from relationships and relationships come from communicating. And again, that's where we as leaders have to be open and honest with our teams lead by example because if we if we if we can have their trust and we must as leaders we must have their trust then that should organically feed into the rest of the team as well i, I would I've, I've been tinkering with a question in my mind because uh, one of the things that i i push for with my team and i i, I uh present as a value when i'm interviewing people it's, it's this kind of low ego um culture that we have so we're, we're very much kind of outcome focused we're interested in the problems we're not looking for heroes or heroics um and i was th- i was thinking about that so that seems to work um but i was thinking is there is there a situation where actually the opposite where you might say i don't want you to learn something actually i want a high ego person are there those are there situations where where that's actually desirable or actually or is it that is always the case that we want people who are going to be always outcome focused uh, and and never kind of wanting status or glory. Yeah, it's a good question that, and it leads back to people. Sorry, it leads back to people 
we're all different aren't we and, and we learn differently and we want to behave differently and we want a different role within the team and, and we have to draw that out on people and, and see where they fit within our team that's right yeah yeah sorry Justin you go ahead I, th- I think to touch I think the answer to the question is dependent on who you're asking the question mm. your commercial guys the people who are charged with making success of the business are going to say no we just want people to do the thing that we want them to do because ultimately we've got to deliver x right those of us who've been around it for a decent amount of time will say no actually we do want to foster that communication that learning that trust that ideal because ultimately as you said in one of your earlier points Sally, two three years down the line we're going to have a better team for it we're going to be able to generate and deliver better product output and stuff like that so i think it's a there's a cultural thing there of you know uh, am i worried about the 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 balance sheet or am i worried about the product am i worried about how we're going to deliver these things and and i think there's a that's how i'd uh, look at that yep um and then on the point about trust i would also like to add that um so i i see it in two ways so there's the social aspect of the trust which you have all like made excellent points on and which is mainly what we focus on but there's also the technical aspect of the trust right so say for example and i've come across this in a team of developers you have tasks assigned to each of them and then one person's task is dependent on the other so there each member needs to be able to trust that um, this developer whose task I depend on, uh, I trust that it's going to do his task properly. And when I get this service or that I'm supposed to consume or this API I'm supposed to consume, it's up to standard. But in some situations, if you say you have somebody in the team whose work is not always up to standard, the person is not maybe competent enough, there's just this mental, um, there's something just in your mind where you say, oh, I'm working with this guy again. I'm sure it's not going to be good, you know. You just, there's always something off, even though they're, they're a nice person, you have good relationship with them. But when it comes to the work, you just, you just can't trust that they will deliver properly. So I think it's also important to let each member know that um, they need to do their job competently so that other team members can trust that they will do their job competently. And it also helps like foster the trust. And um, in terms of um, creating um, continuous learning and development. One thing we employed in my place of work, although this was before COVID, is also part of incentivizing learning. So it doesn't always have to be like a financial incentive. So we do have this thing where we call like bragging rights. So we have like uh, sort of hackathons and people do, and then we have the winners and there's like this little trophy you have on your desk for the week. Say, yeah, you're the champion, you're the a database guru for this week or something like that. It's just, just some friendly competition. Yeah, no, that's good. I like that idea. Yes. Mm. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. I guess also it leads to some nice office banters, which yeah. gets people to build relationship and yeah, gel together. I, I think it's... also there's a really interesting component to what you were saying, which is that um, in response to a developer who doesn't necessarily deliver a uh, the, the, the feature exactly as you'd expect. One of, the, one of the cycles you can get into is then you go back to the product team and say, well, the quality of your requirements wasn't good enough, so you need to write more detailed requirements. Then it goes to the developer. You don't get quite, so you end up with increasingly detailed requirements with a product team who actually should be able to do something quite high level and end up having to go to the nth degree. Now, in certain cases, that's, that's essential because you need everything to be absolutely spot on. But 
in, in kind of the, the, the general flow, you want to be relatively high level with your requirements. Um, and so that that's something to watch out for as well, because otherwise it's a slippery slope into into a product team who just, you know, writing mountains of stuff in Confluence or wherever you write your documentation um, relatively unnecessarily. Um, and in fact, that's something that uh, uh, one of my one of my colleagues has been, been pushing back on. He said, actually, please write me less specific requirements because I want my team to be able to engage their innovative minds to come up with interesting ways to solve the problem. So you get the same outcome. But actually, space to be able to to come up with uh, more interesting ways of, of of solving the problem. So always trying to reverse back out of that kind of situation. But you have to have good communication and trust and and expertise that you can rely on. And from from my perspective, kind of low ego outcome focused people. I, th I think you're completely right. But I think one of the other questions that Richard had on his list was about you know conflict and and personality clashing and i think you know if the sorry to dig out another one of your questions richard but um i think you know if that communication is correct and your developers or your team not just your developers anybody within the team has not the permission but the ability and they know they have the ability to have a conversation with someone who they believe isn't doing what they expect but do it in a constructive manner you know checking the ego and dealing with it as a factual process i think that another part of that trust profile right it's another part of that idea of yeah okay if i don't do this right i'm gonna get bob over here he's gonna come over and tell me what for because i've we've had this conversation already yeah um and it's the it then links into your learning your continuous learning right it's you know, your developers are training each other. Your developers are ensuring that the quality of work that's delivered is uh, the best it possibly can be because they are self-regulating, they're self-managing. Yeah. Work as a team within the team. Yeah, quite right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and rewarding those those behaviours, rewarding that, that being successful and leading by example as well. So I'm very happy to go and sit in my wrongness if I've made a, a bad call and, and talk to people about it because... If if I'm willing to 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 shout about mistakes that I've made and and corrections that I've made as a result, then hopefully other people will see me doing that and be willing to do the same. So I think that's, that also helps if you can do that top down. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, stuff. Uh, before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thanks so much to every one of you uh, for, to our guests today for sharing their thoughts uh, in today's conversation. Once again, our guests on today's podcast have been Charlie Markham, CTO at Metaplexis. Have I pronounced it right, Charlie? Yeah, you did made up. Perfect. Justin as well, uh, head of product at Nine Labs. Azim Oguntola, um, soft development manager at Fizer, and Richard Neal, IT operations director at William Reed Ltd. Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thanks so much to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. If you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on future podcasts, you can drop me a message too. I am Flavio Aragoni and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at flavio.aragoni at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Our website is evolutionjobs.com slash UK. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.